0: Welcome to the conversation of money podcast. This is the weekly show where we talk about all things money and finances and where we furnish you with information so that you can make the best financial decisions possible. So if you want to be better with money, you want to purchase your first home, you want to learn about investing, where to begin, this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Peter I'm so thrilled to have you here. So, without further delay, let's get into this week's show. Okay, hello guys, welcome back to another episode of Conversation of Money. Um, it's another Monday. Hope you guys are well. Hope you had a great weekend. Um, the weather seems to have picked up. At least it is today of recording this, which is always a good thing. And uh, long may this continue. Um, this week's show, I'm back with a guest. Um, guest has actually does something very similar to what I do on social media in terms of the content and the financial education piece. And uh, I want to have a conversation with him today because, um, I wanted to focus on a specific area that may not be for everybody, but it's an important conversation to have either way. Um, his name is Timmy. He's Mr. Money Jar. He is a financial education company does a lot of digital events, coaching, and uh, pr- provides content, like I said, just like me on financial education. Welcome to me. Thanks
1: for having me, Pete. Really good to be here.
0: Thank you for coming on, mate, because I know that, you know, we've had uh, sort of conversations on Instagram, um, and it's nice yeah. to have someone who kind of provides similar content um, on the show with me to kind of just kick it and, and, and have a conversation, really.
1: Yeah no uh, thank, i can't remember who who reached out to who but definitely glad to be connected i think that um no, there's quite a few um money content creators on instagram and everyone kind of tackles a different area and i, I very much believe we're all creating a, a market for ourselves you know
0: absolutely i mean I, i've always said that you know financial education is such an important part of um of our money journey yeah unfortunately we don't get it in school though which really, in 2020, that's a bit of a travesty. Um, And therefore, what happens is that we tend to learn about money as we kind of get older, trial and error, using credit cards, taking out debt, all this kind of stuff. And this kind of content that we're creating as part of the community of of creators now is very much needed for, you know, age groups between 25 and 45, I believe, at least anyway. So it helps people in their adult life make the right decisions.
1: Yeah, I think that We definitely don't get financial education as part of our formal education system. There are some great organizations out there like MyBank and Young Enterprise that go into schools or speak to young people and kind of give them ancillary education. But I completely agree. I think growing up in this country, in the West, you're more likely to get your financial education from brands and companies, Mm i.e. this is what you should buy. This is how to get a discount, which isn't saving money; it's still spending money. Um, but you don't really get anything on the budgeting, saving, and investing side, which I no. think is what we're providing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the point that you make there is actually right—that you know, you do get education from um, the companies who want to sell you stuff. People discount. want to take the money from you, <laughs> of <yeah>. course, <laughs> of course. And it's almost like it's a it's a vicious circle, really. And it's that mentality or that mindset shift that I often refer to in in terms of when you go out shopping and you see like a 50% discount, like you're not getting it 50% free. You're just giving them 50% less than what you would have done last week. So it's, you're still spending your money effectively. Yeah.
1: yeah. You lose 100% of what you spend. Definitely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a really interesting dynamic and certainly with my followers on, on IG, what often what I get is I get a lot of questions about how to invest, where to invest, um, all that kind of stuff. I get the odd question about budgeting and paying down debt, but there seems to be more of an attraction these days around investing in the stock market. Why do you think that is? I think it's down to the content that's on social media and the content Mm. that's out in on YouTube and all over the place now. I think it makes investing attractive. And now the fact that it's easy to start investing, I mean, you've got people like Trading 212 and Free Trade and Robin Hood and all these guys that are coming up now where you can can start buying shares for like $0 now, like literally with a pound, fractional shares. Um, And therefore it kind of introduces the concept of investing to younger people in that way. And that's, it's good, it's great. But what is missing though is the foundations that are required for you to actually get to the stage where you can invest.
1: Definitely. And something that I've, a a way of thinking that I've really come around to in the last few months is just that let's dial it way back to basics. Like if you pay into a workplace or a personal pension, which will be set up on your behalf when you, you know, when you join a company, you earn over 10K a year then you are investing like investing is not this flashy kind of thing. Like what you might see in like Wolf of Wall Street or the big short, it's actually quite boring and something that you do gradually over time. Yeah. and um, You're probably already doing it.
0: Yeah. I I think with pensions though, there's so much misinformation and Mm. so much, um, there's been so much negative press about pensions that it's not something that people think about. And I'm just like, dude, you, you're
1: missing
0: yeah. such a big opportunity with a pension. Yeah. It's like, it's free yeah. money from your employer, yeah. free money from the government. Yeah. Like there's so many tax benefits. It's like, why? I was coaching. I did a coaching um, call with someone on Sunday and uh, I said, you know, are you paying into a pension? He goes, no. And I was like, dude, why? And he goes, yeah. well, I had, my, my dad's had a bad experience and I don't know. I just, I'm not convinced. And I said, look, Please promise me, we talked through the benefits and stuff, so just promise me that you're going to speak to your HR department on Monday,
1: please. It's such a thing to miss. Furthermore, there's, you know, I think the the private pension and the state pension get conflated a lot as well. So you've got the pension freedom's age, you know, 55 years old when you can draw down on a private or workplace pension. Then you've got the state pension, which kicks in at 68, Mm -hmm. which... I don't even know if that will be around by the time we get to that age or if it will even be 68 by the time we get there. But I think people get confused between the two as well. But if, yeah. if if we're talking about a workplace pension, private pension, I really like to dial it down and just say, just imagine it as a savings account that you pay into every month. You just can't access the money until you're in your mid-50s, your 60s. Yeah. It's
0: exactly the same. Yeah. I think there are many people that have this misunderstanding because obviously pensions have changed quite a bit you no mm. longer have the whole bit of you know uh the the gad department uh the government actuar- actuarial department dictating how much you can take from your pension at any given time with freedoms yep. that has completely changed i think people still think that that is a thing that you're told how much you can take out of your pension every single year and that with that not being the case, I mean, pension freedoms changed a lot of things. It changed the fact of your employees has got to contribute. You've got total freedom over what you take on your pension, how you take it, how you spend it. But with that, you've mentioned something that is quite important. Yeah. With that, they're putting the onus on everybody else. So it's your responsibility for a pension. And that opens the door for the fact that the state pension may very well not be around when you and I get to state pension age. Yeah, because there isn't a pot of money that pays for that it's a it's a it's paid out of the tax take yeah and um
1: yeah as i said previously it's, it's 68 at the moment it will probably go up because we're all living and working longer but um yeah it remains to be seen how because i think net more money is coming out of the quote-unquote pension fund and is coming Mm -hmm. in through our national insurance payments so it really does remain to be seen whether there'll be anything to draw down on by the time we get to our you know late 60s and i wouldn't be surprised if the state has to intervene or maybe you know there'll be a universal basic income by that point and um everyone will have their kind of rent and basic necessities paid for by the state
0: who knows yeah, who knows? It's a really good point on that one. So one thing I was going to ask you then, so on obviously your content, your uh, Instagram-based, that kind of stuff. And I, I know I did ask you this sort of last week, but I'm interested just for the, for the listeners to kind of here in terms sure. of the content that you create and the main things that you get asked by your followers as well before we get on to what we were going to s- discuss today in the, on the show.
1: Yeah, so main questions I'd say I get are investing for the first time, pensions like how much should i be paying in how much do you how how much of a pot size do you need when you retire um a lot of stuff on budgeting um not very much i'm surprised on like how to make money like a lot of the conversations around what to do with the money that i already have Mm -hmm. um and i try and create content around so my my um almost hypothesis is that, as you mentioned at the start of the podcast, we don't receive financial education at school. Mm-hmm. This creates a gap. But I don't think it's, a, I think it's an information gap. I don't think it's an understanding gap. Mm-hmm. So my aim, whenever I create content is to great things that I think people don't know, but will most likely understand when they see it. Mm-hmm. I think that when you connect those two things, really positive things happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, wouldn't, I couldn't agree more with you on that because it is definitely an information gap that we have um, because a lot of the time, so with my experience in financial services, 15 years I've worked with clients as a financial advisor. Yeah. What I always notice is that there seems to be this myth that, well, if you're wealthy or if you're rich, you have access to certain information that we don't necessarily or other people don't necessarily don't get access to. And I think that that is true to some extent because there is that information gap. And the more we're able to provide information so so that people can pick it up and disseminate, you know, take it in, disseminate, digest it, then hopefully apply it, then all of a sudden that gap begins to close. Because let's face it, investing in the market, it's not actually complicated, but there are things that you have to obviously know and do and understand before you get to that point. Because otherwise, you're jumping in feet first, not really knowing what you're, what, what, what you're going to be faced with. And for some people, it's going to be a big, big shock, depending on when you get into the markets.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, I read a, a book by Charlie Munger, so Warren Buffett's um, business partner. And I think he was a person who said that, like, when it comes to something like the olympics people don't think that they can like run the 100 meters in 9 seconds but mm-hmm. when it comes to investing people just kind of dive in head first <laughs> um, and i think that the analogy is quite apt i think starting with anything you want to start with the basics you want to so you want to use your tracker funds, your your robo advisors. You want to kind of read and do research, and then you can work your way up. And it's fun to do that too, because you you learn with each new platform you research, each new book you read.
0: Mm. So for you then, because this is one thing that I get all the time, mm. is I get people wanting to literally go straight in and invest in direct shares, like immediately, straight away. Sure. And I'm I'm often like whoa, just like, hold on, like, come back a little bit, just come back a little bit. That's one thing. Then you've got investing in funds and tracker funds. Like you just mentioned there, there are pros and cons to doing both. I think barrier to entry sometimes like puts people off, but really with, even with tracker funds now, there isn't really no barrier to entry because there's a load of apps that you can invest with now where you can start with a pound. You can round up your transactions and, and get invested. How do you see that dynamic between this social media investing in direct stocks or going with a tracker fund? Because you're right, you start off at one place, get into the point where you're investing in direct stock, for me, is maybe five steps ahead of yeah. where you should be at the very, very beginning.
1: Yes, it's the, it's the black slope of investing. Hmm. I, I, I love an analogy. So like skiing, like it's just mm. like going skiing and just going straight onto a black slope, no helmet. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like
1: you, 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 you probably won't die, but you'll probably get very badly injured. Like you want to start your nice wide green slope.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know what it is? I, I will give, I think it's to do with familiarity. So, um, and there's probably some really interesting research that can be done with this. But I think, People maybe, um, recognize the, go down the direct shares route because at the end of the day, like we're all using Facebook, we're all using Apple, mm-hmm. um, all using Amazon. And that is what you know and see. So it's almost taking your, maybe it's taking your consumer experience and translating it over to your investment experience. Like, mm-hmm. um, I, I heard a quote once, like, you know, I like buying Starbucks, so I buy Starbucks stock. Mm-hmm kind of thing um and that makes a lot of sense i think what's important is when when speaking to i I try to make sure that if if you're going to take away then you must also give so if if i'm going to speak to someone and say don't go down the black slope don't go down the direct shares route that you describe what the alternative is
0: absolutely yeah
1: and and explain it and then that's why and that's also what i try and do my content so i have a post which like compares individual shares to individually wrapped mars bars Mm -hmm. and then funds to like a box of celebrations Mm
0: -hmm.
1: just to sort of break down how the different investment types work and that that seems to work for people
0: yeah i mean i'm a firm believer that you have to know exactly what you're going into again information is is key at least when you have the information you're able to then make an informed decision. And that's always been everything. That's always been the guiding light to any conversation that I have with anybody, right? Yeah. If you have the information, you can then decide to say, okay, maybe I should do this one in opposed to doing that one. But you need to know, like you're saying, right, you want to do that. These are the pros and cons. This is an alternative. These are the pros and cons. Yep, yep. Then that's you can it. decide w- whether you still want to go down that route or whether you want to go on and do the alternative because you feel that that's going to be better with you, better for you now that you've got the information and you know what the pros and cons are.
1: That's it. That's it. Yeah. It's, it's that information gap thing again, and um, that's why I, th- I think social media is so powerful. You know, just to think that you know, being on Instagram, a place that's traditionally not associated with money and finance that sort of thing Mm -hmm. i'm so happy to have met the community met yourself met all of the other money pages on there all all of the other brands um and no we can just move information around so quickly now um so i I do believe that even though we didn't get the education that going forward people will
0: yeah on that I, a, a question just popped to my head and I, I have to ask cause I'd love to get your take on this. So a lot of the big brands, the big financial services brands, Instagram isn't really a thing for these guys at this point yeah. in time. And I personally believe that that is a big, 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 big gap and a big mistake on their yeah. part Because what I've noticed in wealth management. And I know the reason why it makes sense with, from a commerciality point of view is they essentially go and chase the guys who've got all the money right now assets under management those guys will be the baby boomers so you know you're looking at 50 maybe 45 plus even heading towards that area where they've accumulated some wealth during their life and that leaves a vacuum behind in that age group between 25 and 44 really right guys that are working earning good money building businesses earning really really well young people who are probably earning the highest amounts of money in history for the age group. yeah. And at the moment, they're not being serviced. And with banks t- stripping back some of the services that they're providing, these guys are getting their information from social media, which is why the work that you and I do and the rest of the community do is really important in just guiding do you Do you feel that big brands are, are missing a trick?
1: I think it depends on the brands you're talking about. So if you look at a company like Monzo, They're very active on social media, active Instagram, active Twitter, Mm -hmm. um, great blog. You know, they can put out, they can do a crowdfund and close it in a, a, is it like seconds or minutes? Mm -hmm. So they've nailed that. But yeah, when I think about more established brands, um, they aren't really anywhere to be seen on social media. I wonder if, as you said, that's because they already have their established customer base and so they don't need to. I do think it's potentially a missed opportunity, though, because eventually we are going to become, we, we're going to eventually fall into the age group that those more established brands would consider their customer base. Yep. And rightly or wrongly, social media is here and is how we consume a lot of our information. So I do think that they could use it to build up some pipeline yeah and it it doesn't mean that as a brand you need to be posting your own content and stuff or maybe working with bloggers and influencers and and that sort of thing like brands in other industries do
0: yeah and to add on to that the fact that there will be a huge wealth transfer in the next 20 15 to 20 years really of to course, the tune yeah. of about to to the tune of about 1.3 trillion pounds yeah. i mean that number is scary and this is one thing that I've always had in the back of my head. Like, so and I've worked for a number of investment houses and, and and big firms. This isn't really on their radar. The ones that are, it's kind of there. They kind of know, but they're yeah. not really making any strides to really actively do anything about it. Yeah, and I'm like, well, at some point it is going to be too late because these people that we're now talking to now and and, and interacting with and providing information to, you've got to build trust. It's like you can't expect, you know, mummy and daddy to be gone with money. You know? Yeah, you've got to build trust. You can't expect mummy and daddy to be gone and automatically you are the person that they're going to go to just because you looked after mummy and daddy. No. Yeah. Like the, the, the it's a completely different generation. The way they, the way we think of money is completely different.
1: Yeah, and that, that that's a good point too. I think there's some really interesting things that could be done when you look at our generation we're more likely than other generations to care about things like you know gender equality racial equality um sustainability the environment and you know as as a brand I'd be thinking great like what what thought leadership what research what products and services could I package up to appeal to this new audience but The thing that you're talking about, you know, about it being too late, I wonder if that's just a human problem. Mm. If we look, for example, at coronavirus, we sat on our asses for three months. True, yeah. (laughs) And we we have everything in place now to deal with it, but, like, we kind of waited until it was too late to do anything. Very, very true. Um, That's not me criticizing anyone. I just think it's the focus issue. People yeah. don't really tend to do things until they have to do them.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would say on the flip side to that, that coronavirus came out of nowhere. I mean, I think for for the industry, I think the signs are there. It's just, it's like it's written on the wall, but is anybody really reading the writing? Like seriously yeah. reading the writing? I don't know. Yeah. It's It's one of those things that's always stuck with me, particularly for the last maybe three or four years, especially when I was advising to say, well, actually, look, this is a big opportunity. Yes. It's a, it's a long lead time, but you've got to think long-term and that is, it's, it's a big long-term plan, but it's an essential long-term plan. Yeah. So I think that leads us very nicely into kind of what we were talking about, um, for this specific episode. Now for people who are listening Um, you can't see us and you can hear us and you know that I'm black. Uh, Timmy is also black as well. And given what's going on at the moment in society with, you know, the riots and the protests and whatever you want to call them, we wanted to talk specifically about um, the differences in some of the financial principles and how they actually apply to our community. So for the black community specifically, and I was reading a, a statistic um, over the weekend because I did a show for another group um, on Sunday afternoon and there was a statistic that came out that was actually very very interesting and I thought would be really good as a conversation piece for this for this show the statistic um, read something like um, and please take this with a pinch of salt don't jump at a conclusion when I mention this because I know that this issue is very, very high on the gender right now. But this is factual stuff that I'm about to say that is actually been produced by the ONS. And this is a topic of discussion because it needs to be addressed. So the statistic was that the black community get paid on average 27, 21.7% less than their white counterparts. And when I read that, I thought it was very, very interesting. Because when I look at my upbringing, and I know, I know a load of people within the communities in London and across the country, who are on, I would say, low income, what that essentially does is that applies financial pressure. And we wanted to talk a little bit bit about this today in terms of what are the things that you can do that we know that you can do to really help that situation along? Because the fact is there is a financial burden there. And whilst that gap needs to be addressed and there's a petition going on around at the moment. So if you're listening to this and you do want to support that, definitely go and sign it. I'll put a, a link in the show notes whilst we do have to deal with that. It's important to also have a look at things that we can do to help people manage money better. So that's the, the topic of the conversation uh, this week with Timmy, but I, I want to hand it over to you. What do you think of that? Cause that's an interesting number.
1: Yeah. So, the gender, I, I've i not looked at the breakdown of the data specifically, but when I think about it, the, the ethnicity pay gap compared to the gender pay gap, um, I think if you break, you can break the information down by seniority level and by industry. So I would definitely want to see how that 21.7% plays out depending on how senior... Um, the employees are. It'd be mm-hmm. interesting to see if it's if if you're at junior level is actually quite you know there is no gap. But then the more senior you get, there's a bigger gap. And whether that shows up, the fact that black people are much or should I say ethnic? Pe- I, I don't like to use ethnic as synonymous mm-hmm. with black, but just to avoid um, clumsy wording, um, people from an ethnic background are less likely to be senior. And Mm -hmm. therefore that's why there's a pay gap. Um, It'd be interesting to know if there's qualitative or like behavioral information, um, behavioral reasons why. Mm -hmm. And to expand on that, I think about myself coming out of uni going into my first job. um, I, I just took the jobs that were available and I didn't, Have any appreciation of asking for a pay rise and getting paid what I was worth. I was just happy to be working because, you know, those weren't conversations I'd necessarily had at home. What I will say unequivocally, though, is it should be mandatory. The same way the um, gender pay gap reporting is mandatory, it should be mandatory for ethnicity pay as well.
0: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that because I would there are some additional numbers that i are, that are put out there as well. Because when I was doing that, a bit of research for that show on Sunday, they did break down the household income quintiles. All so, right. And they did it across the different ethnic groups in the, in the country. And I think in the lower half, so the lower half of the household income quintile, 55% was of the black um, community. Then at the high end, so the highest um, income households, there were 25% in the high end, but at the very, very top, it was 10%. Was right. Number. And I think you made a quick point, a really good point there. in the fact that even, even myself, um, with my career working in Canadian Wolf and, and a number of other com- uh, companies, I didn't necessarily think to ask if I'm being paid the same as everybody else, because it was, it was just, a, you just take it as well. It's got to be fair because it's got to be fair. Right. Yeah you don't know unless you know to, to ask. And I definitely can't say that I knew to ask because those numbers were a little bit of a surprise to me.
1: Yeah. And I'm going to try and speak from my own personal experience. so I don't kind of color the whole black experience um, with, with the same brush, but even things like I'm Nigerian, I come from a Nigerian family and hierarchy plays a big part so as a young person working in my first job it was very strange to me that I could call my boss by his or her first name (laughs) yeah (laughs) that I could I could speak back That I could say that's a stupid idea my white counterparts were very happy to say things like that because that's part not that that's part of like British white British culture but um you're certainly, not going to get told off for doing stuff like that, but yeah, you, you do have to consider that it could be the case that a, a young black man or woman in their first job is having to contend with a huge difference in culture from what they were brought up in, and that for me did play into well, I feel you know, if I do feel like I deserve more money, then. Can I just walk into my boss's office and ask?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: yeah, there were definitely other people doing that. I didn't do that. Well, it took me a while to do that. Yeah. Also, so like, please let me know if I'm going off-piste. But I think that also within my experience of Nigerian culture, there is this kind of pounded yam mentality, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna explain. So. <laughs> People don't know what pounded yam is. I know what you're gonna say. <laughs> it's a very, it's it's a bit like yam is a bit like a potato. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, got, it's got a, it's it's a root vegetable. It's slightly denser. It's got a hard skin, but you cook it same way as a potato. You can boil it. You can kind of dry it up and grind it down. And it's used to make this food called pounded yam, and it's a very laborious process. <laughs> like. I'm much taller than my mum and I'm much stronger than her and I can't make pounded yam, but she can, you know, she has, she's got this immense strength. And what I'm saying here is this kind of idea that the harder you work, the more money you will earn is this pounded yam mentality. It took my mum 40 something years to realise that she could just stick it in the microwave and get the same (laughs) (laughs) results. That if you've not battled with the pounded yam, that, it's not going to taste the same. or It's not going to be as good. Yeah, and I think so. so to sort of round off, um, I definitely went to work thinking, "Well, if I just work a few more hours, if I just show up this much earlier, if I stay this much later, then I'll get paid more money." It's like no. Like a lot of the people that are managing you, who aren't doing the day-to-day delivery of the work you're doing, are being paid like twice what you're being paid.
0: Uh huh. Uh huh. Just so like
1: knowing how to play the game as well.
0: Yeah. That. Everything you just said there brings back one very specific memory for me, right. and it kind of illustrates exactly what you just said there around the hierarchy of: Are you allowed to go and see your boss? So when I came back to the country, because I did ten years out in Nigeria, All um, right? I, yeah, I, I was I was fostered between three and seven. At seven, because I only met our my well, our eldest brother, my eldest brother. Um, there were two others that I hadn't met. So they decided that they were going to ship me over to Nigeria. It was supposed to be for two weeks, but I stayed there for 10 years. I did all of my secondary school education out there. So I I came back here at age 17, 50 quid in my pocket. And my first job was at a spa in East Sussex in a town called Hastings. And I was stacking shelves, basically. And the boss there was a guy called Mr. Plester. Always remember him. It was a bit of a... It was, He was, it was, it was, it was a little nasty basically, mm-hmm. but when I, because I literally just landed back in the country, I was very much of that whole, well, your elders, you've got to respect them yeah, and you know, all that yeah. kind of stuff. So I remember specifically my first day or so, I was calling him sir and he's he going, yeah. don't, he's like, don't call me sir. Call me Dave. Yeah. Call me <laughs> Dave. And I'm like, what? Like, really? Yeah. Uncle Dave? Yeah. No, yeah. Dave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, this is so, so, so weird. So when you said yeah. that, I was like, I remember it so vividly yeah. because I was like, yeah. okay, he's my elder. Actually, he's my boss. Yeah. So actually, he is literally my boss. I've got to be subservient to him and be respectful because that's what it's like in the culture. You pay respects to your elders and you don't
1: talk yeah. to Yeah. I think it was um, Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, um, that I read this in, talked about different um, sort of democracies, the size of the state and the effect that that has on culture. So in the West, um, the state, so like g- generally speaking, the state provides the health care, um, provides the welfare, provides the schooling, it's a much more individualized society, mm-hmm. and therefore the role of family kind of gets diminished. Mm-hmm. And you don't have the hierarchy, whereas back home, the emphasis is much more on family. The state is much smaller, and therefore things like hierarchy and respecting your elders and um, and that sort of thing play much more of of a part. I also think that in Nigerian culture, there's a lot more of a warmth as well. You know, like mm-hmm. everyone is your I, I grew up thinking I had the, the biggest family. family. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I've got so many cousins, so <laughs> many uncles, so yeah. many aunts. Your next you door neighbours yeah. Your yeah. next door neighbours, your auntie, your uncle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're
1: sort of like and then you get older and you realise, oh right, so we're not blood related. you yeah. just my you just went to school with yep. my uh so um both there's no right or wrong, by the way. I don't judge either, but both um approaches have their pros and cons but I think for guys like us who our parents came here brought us here brought us up with a flavor of the kind of back home culture but then we, we also have to understand and assimilate into British culture we're constantly having to wear two different hats and I'm really I'm really interested in knowing how much that plays into something like an ethnicity pay gap mm-hmm. because with ethnicity pay gaps um gender pay gaps i try and be an optimist i don't think it's people going i purposefully want to pay this woman or this black person less i think it's more of an invisible systemic problem mm-hmm. which needs to be addressed through taking deliberate steps to measure it deliberate steps to report on it and deliberate transparent steps to fix it
0: yeah yeah yeah, I will completely agree. I mean, again, when we have these kind of conversations, I think it's really important that we're open and we're honest in terms of how we actually feel. And I, again, like you, I don't feel as though it's purposely done vindictively. I think it's a remnant of the way things have been done for the last 40 years that are just yeah. the norm. Yeah. now. And yeah the norm 40, 50 years ago doesn't necessarily mean that it should be the norm or fair in today's society because things do move on. And if we are going to address this, then it is going to be about being transparent and having these conversations and being open with it and saying, well, actually, you know what? In 2020, we think that, you know, regardless of the color of your skin or your your gender, you should be paid equal pay. If you're basically it's qualified as each other doing the same job, it has to be equal.
1: I think that there's some ancillary stuff that comes into it as well. Be interested to get your view. Like I'm a big fan of wage transparency. The company that I work at at the moment, everyone knows how much everyone else earns Mm -hmm. and um, we're quite a small team. So logistically um, it's, it's a bit easier to do that. But I, I think people should be able to speak to their colleagues about how much they earn with no shame at all, because That way you know whether you're being underpaid versus someone else. And then you can go to the people who are in charge and make a case for why you should be paid more. Not bully them or anything, but be like, look, it's the market and I'm being paid this much. And like, I could go and work for company X. So like, do you want to, you know, and just have those conversations?
0: I agree. I agree. I've never seen it happen where in all of the years that I've been in financial services, like talk about pay. No. Like nobody does. As in nobody does or it's not allowed tacitly. I think it's a case of, I think it's a case of both, but nobody does because it's like, well, you're not supposed to. So you just don't ask. In my last role, I did ask and I did, I knew that I was being paid more than some people and some people were being paid more than me. But you know what they say this will come down to, it will come down to negotiation skills. So when you're, at that final stage interview and you're negotiating your salary, how hard did you push? So I was lucky in the last role where I was like, listen, well, this is what I want. And it's gotta be that if I'm going to move. Yeah. And they it up. It was the same thing. The one that I just got maybe done it from just now. Like, what do you want? And they gave me what I wanted. So I think there's a little bit of a dynamic of that going on in there, I guess, but have a conversation with a, with a, a colleague, um, openly about how much you paid i think sometimes as well people are a little bit guarded about what they get paid as well they don't necessarily want to be open with that
1: um, yeah.
0: i don't know but maybe because there's a element of i don't know judgment in there they feel i don't know yeah but i think you know there
1: needs to be a shift you're not being paid the role is true it's nothing like the company the people in the company care about you and they want you to be happy and they want to, the company itself, the legal entity itself does not care about you. Mm. There are roles there. Staff is just a line on the PNL. Mm-hmm. The role is being paid. So there should be, no, that's why if you find out that someone else's role is being paid more than your role, you shouldn't take it personally because the company doesn't care. It's for you to speak to the people in the company to address that issue and is, is the reason why we shouldn't be guarded about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. This is something that uh, Soraya um, on the show maybe three or four weeks ago was mentioning when we were talking about okay. you negotiating for for pain. She was saying, you know, you need to ask the question. They, if you ask the question in your... You know, you're upfront about it, then they'll probably tell you and say, "Well, okay, this is what the the pay ceiling is or the pay grades are," and, and you basically go from there. But you have to put your foot forward and actually ask the question to begin yeah. with.
1: Yeah, But I'm I think in terms of addressing the ethnicity pay gap, signing the petition um, is a great first step because it's a it's a government petition, and they they will consider it for debate. So it's past the ten thousand signatures threshold which is when they have to sort of acknowledge it but if we can get it to 100,000 then they will consider it for debate in parliament mm-hmm. and um there's a great um instagrammer called uh savvy savvy wallet and he did a video where he talked about the importance of petitions and how they they really work and ever since then i've taken them a lot more a lot more seriously yeah um because you know you get like the george floyd petition last mm-hmm. i checked had um, I think like 10, 20 million signatures or something like mm-hmm. that. Those are big numbers and they do get yeah. people stand to attention.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So now that we're talking about the 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 pay gap from an ethnic point of view, yeah. I kind of said at the top of the segue of this, that one thing that I wanted to do on this show is kind of just talk about some of the things that people can do to perhaps relieve the financial burden that they might be feeling if they are in that kind of situation where they are earning so little that they do have to go and get a second job. And you and I spoke about this a little bit before the show in the fact that the basics around personal finance becomes even more important at that level. Definitely. So just tell me your thoughts on that and the kind of things that, you know, you think are important for, for it.
1: So just so that I understand the question, how to manage money when money is of critic, like when, when money is limited, basically. Yeah, yeah. Great. So I think that first and foremost, you want to cut your fixed costs. So your rent, your bills, um, as much as you possibly can, because those are things that you're going to have to pay for anyway. And living in London, or a major city in the UK could comprise anywhere from a third to half of your take home pay. Um, One of the ways that I've done this previously is moving close to work. So my first job out of uni it was based near london bridge and i used mm-hmm. to live in tooting mm-hmm. and i was paying my you know normal london rent in tooting i was paying for my travel card of like 150 pounds a month and when i got paid i'd literally have to pay half of it out
0: mm-hmm. i
1: solved that by moving closer to work so by the time i went to the next job i was living in uh, in and around the kennington area Okay, and the rent was more or less the same but i could walk to work which meant that every month i had 100 200 quid spare cash which i could then save yeah um, i think also considering the total cost of your purchases is very important so I'll take for example a phone when you're buying a phone you don't want to think about it just as the just as the rrp but all of the ancillary costs that come around that. So you buy the phone, the cases, the, the contract, the, you know, the fees that you get paid when you go with your minutes and stuff, Mm -hmm. try and buy things that aren't going to cost you lots of money after you've bought them. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something that's worked for me. And then also just shopping around and, and using your money a bit more smartly. So I'm a big, big fan of cashback websites Mm -hmm. to buy things like utilities, Mm -hmm. broadband, insurance, holidays, um, you know, online shopping. I've made a few hundred quid back on things that I would have bought anyway, just by buying through websites like top cashback and Quidco.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think those are really important things. And I think most of the time it takes people to pay attention to it and be in be intentional around it. Cause I think often what happens is work is busy, family's busy. And then it, it's kind of left as the last thing that we think about, like, yeah. Oh, we should review our, our utility bills, for example. And one of the great ones um, that I, I literally use this and they've just moved my electric, my household bills, uh, gas and electric over in the last three to four weeks is a company um, like, uh, look after my bills. Sure. Basically these guys, they will switch your energy supplies every single year, look for the best um, sort of deal for you. And if they can save you, I think it's a minimum of like five or 10 pounds a month, they'll move you automatically. You don't have to do that work yourself. And that's what I've used, but it takes a conscious effort to be, to be cognizant of like, how do I shrink down my, my fixed costs as much as possible? Because it's so easy to just carry on with life and just let them just do whatever they do because we're busy yeah
1: i think a good exercise to do as well well one of the things i can solve that is to have a monthly finance routine
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. massively
1: massively recommend that on the first of the month or as close to the first of the month just you know download your bank statements from your main bank account um and just have a look at them and just see like is there a gym subscription that keeps coming out but you've (laughs) not been to the gym for the last three months yeah. What items, what are the top 10 most expensive items on there outside of your fixed costs? And be like, what are, what are the things that I'm price insensitive to? Or what are the things that I seem to be spending a lot of money on, but I don't think I spend that much money on them? And you can go forward in that month and just make subtle changes to how you, um, how you spend your money. I also think that when you save is really important too. So I save on the day that I get paid. It's a sort of Rami Sethi um, approach of, you know, you save and then you just spend the rest guilt mm-hmm. free rather than spend at the start of the month and save what's left. Um, I I advocate, even if it's like, you know, a fiver or, or a tenner, like over the course of a year, that's like 120 pounds. If you put um, yeah. 10 pounds away every month and, I don't know what the statistic is, but some like a quarter of Brits our age have zero pounds in savings. So it's I at least something.
0: It's one in five. One in five one have in less five. than hundred pounds. Yeah. So number.
1: there's just a lot. To, the great thing about personal finance is a lot of it's common sense, isn't it? It's just making making the time and you know being aware.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything you just said there is absolutely spot on. Cause it's, that's one of the things that I use with my coaching clients to say, right, what you need that, there, there needs to be a system that you put in place. I call it bucketing basically. So okay. you look at your, you look at your household, your income and you work out how much is for your essential bills, your fixed costs, then how much you then got for, I don't know, let's say you want to go on cinemas. You want to go out every month. How much money do you need for that? And anything that's left over that's what you then allocate into a savings plan or into an emergency fund, something like that. So you, you essentially have buckets, you have your fixed costs, you have your discretionary spend, then you have your disposable income. And the idea is that each month you try and make sure that you've got money in each pot. And the more you can have in your disposable income pot, the better. But it's that conscious effort of making sure that you think of it in that way. Three buckets, three streams. One is my essentials, my fixed costs. I have to pay those one one of these streams is for the stuff that I like and enjoy doing, then one thing is for emergencies for the future, that kind of stuff building for later on in life.
1: Yeah. And I can certainly remember a time in my life where I didn't want to look at my bank account because I just, mm-hmm. I was worried about what I'd see. And to people who are in that position, I just say that just try to be as rational as possible because the numbers, they the numbers don't care really. It's, not, you know, money is one of the most unemotional things there is. We, we put all of the emotion onto it. You need to be able to just look at your financial situation for what it is. Yeah. So that you can move forward with it and, and improve it.
0: Yeah. I, I always have this saying, you know, money is a tool, not commi- not a commodity. You're right. Yeah. You know, you've got to look at this dispassionately. You need to have a look at it for what it is. It is a tool. If you don't use it properly, you're going to misuse it. It's going to be gone out of your fingers probably lined the pockets of somebody else. Yeah. So think about the intention that you have with your cash, right? If you go, and I say this all the time, if you go to a 9 to 5, you work your butt off every single day and let's just say you don't particularly like it, right? And you get paid some money at the end of the month. Why would you just go and spend it without thought? Because yeah. the time that you're spending at work you don't enjoy, you're pretty much sacrificing your some people, their happiness really, um, yeah. to go to the nine to five. So, the money that you get off the back of that, treat it with respect, treat it as a tool to help you progress out of that situation and, and build for the future, and give you some options.
1: Yeah. This is where the education piece comes back in.
0: Mm, absolutely.
1: Um, I remember being younger and spending money, finding reasons to spend money because I didn't know <laughs> what else I was supposed to do with it. Yeah. So, the bit that the bit of, the, the bucket that you call disposable would just be like, well, I've got 200 pounds left. <laughs> How many games can I buy with it? So yeah. I've reduced it to zero. Yeah. I knew nothing about investing. I, I didn't know that if I put this much away and let it compound, at a mm-hmm. rate, whatever, that it would grow into thousands of pounds later on.
0: Yeah,
1: I didn't know about um, like a savings account, like the, well, nationwide has just cut their flex direct rate but you know like saving every month and then getting like the 5% back um but also if you are at a job you don't like or maybe you you work with colleagues that you're not the greatest fan of I completely understand that feeling of you know like it's just Friday and you just want to go to the pub or you just Mm want to go and do something nice because you spent so long that week doing stuff you don't enjoy that is a very real human emotion, and I I, I I get that too. I guess in response to that, I would say, you know, I try not to veer off into self-help because I do see myself very much as a money person, but think about the job. This is like a quote from Warren Buffett. Do the job you would do if you were already independently wealthy. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, pretend... And I don't wanna I don't wanna gloss over people who have real hardships or real financial commitments, but if you can, do the job that you would do if you didn't need the money. Because if you enjoy that job, you have a much greater chance of excelling at it. And in the highest, in the top ten percent of any field is where all the highest earners are. So yeah. why not just be somewhere you wanna be, even if that means you're not being paid as much in the short term?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. There was right. So we had a conversation last week, and you yeah. mentioned something that is very, very true. And I want to talk about that for um, the fellow Nigerians who are who are here, or actually within our community. I think it's pretty much exactly the same. Okay. The direction of the flow of money, because oh, yeah. this is a really big thing within the community and within you know uh, black culture, I guess. Talk a little bit about that. I'm sure it will resonate with a a few people who listen to this.
1: Yeah, so if you're, again, I'll speak from my own experiences. Um, Grew up Nigerian family. Um, We talked a lot about hierarchy, about um, kind of family ties earlier on in the episode. There is an expectation um, of, Of children to support their elders and I think that again comes into you know in the UK the state provides your pension you pay into it over the course of your working life the state provides it but the experience that I've had with my family is like your children are your pension
0: Mm -hmm. almost Mm -hmm.
1: and you know you support your elders so in practical examples I've had instances where my mum has been going back home to Nigeria to visit her parents. And it'll be like, you just get a WhatsApp. And it's like, yeah, so we're going back to Nigeria. So can you give us 10 pounds, 20 pounds to give to your grandparents? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you give it, but that is the opposite way that money flows for a lot of my white and non-black friends mm-hmm. where every Christmas they're being given like 200, 300 pounds by their grandparents. And what this does is it makes it very difficult if you're the you know the youngest generation in the family to build any wealth for yourself because it's constantly going up the chain um, to people who have worked you know who have gone through their entire working lives But but at the same time i don't know if you agree with this pete i almost feel like we also subscribe to that so i do feel this duty of Wanting to look after my family, would yeah. you agree?
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Absolutely. I mean, I for me in my family. Um, so I'm the last of four boys. I'm the only on the only boy to be born here in the UK. So okay, I was born in '79. So I'm lucky to have a British passport, British birth certificate. So '79. Hmm, yeah, you're ten years older than me. Yeah, man, I'm forty. I'm forty. What moisturiser are you using? (laughs) (laughs) Tell me after the show.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my (laughs) goodness. Guys. I thought thought you knew. You can't can't see Pete right now, but my guy is (laughs) glistening. I thought we were the
0: same age. Good on you, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers, mate. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. (laughs) So I am the last of four boys, right? So when they decided to whisk me home when I was like seven years old and I was there for 10 years, it was kind of drilled in me. Like you are the savior of the family. You're the one that's yes. going to be like, you're going to go back over to the UK. You're going to earn money. You're going to take care of the entire family. So yeah. that was like drilled into me from when I was like literally seven, eight, yeah. nine, ten, 10, yeah. all the way through secondary school, particularly in the last like two or three days when they knew I was coming back. I mean, it, it was, it was some militant stuff, like serious, conversations like sit down like remember where we are remember who we are yeah and make sure that you do take care of us so yeah I think it's very very easy to subscribe to that feeling and I, I guess for me I know what I left behind um, I know that my family weren't necessarily wealthy they are kind of middle class but I, I remember days where we had no electric no running water we didn't have any food to eat for like two yeah, days man. I remember yeah, those days like it was yesterday. So I have that kind of innate obligation where I feel like I should be taking care of them. But at the same time, in order to build wealth for myself, I need to break free of that as well. So yeah. in order to do the things that I need to plan for my future, to pay into a pension and all this kind of stuff that we've been talking about, I need to break free of that. And it's a very difficult, um, it's a difficult thing to navigate.
1: Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you share this feeling. I have this feeling of wanting to be really generous and wanting to look after my family. Like a lot of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing now is, you know, so that I can one day buy my mum a house, you know, or we all have these aspirations at the exact same time of never wanting to take a penny from my children. I just, I feel like it has to end with me. Otherwise we can't move forward. And maybe we're a bit of a sandwich generation in that sense.
0: Yeah, I would completely agree. Definitely. I mean, it's something I've, I've really, really struggled with in the past. And, um, yeah, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm the only one in my family here. I don't have any family here in the UK. So I don't have anybody to fall back on. I have nobody to call. I've been homeless a couple of times, nobody to call. Uh So for me, it's been like, I can't, I can't call home and ask for money because they don't have anything. Right. So when I'm in trouble, I know that I'm in trouble and I've got nowhere to go. So in that, in that idea of trying to break free from that, I have to remember that I haven't got anybody else to fall back on. If I'm yeah. not responsible with my money right now, my biggest fear is going homeless. That is my biggest fear
1: Yeah. Ever.
0: Like yeah. failure for me equals that.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: it's very much at the forefront of my mind that I need to look after myself as well. Yeah. Um, as well as look after them. So my big dream is, you know, make a success. I do want to buy my mom a house. I do want to, you know, look after my brothers and they've got family and all that sort of stuff. Now I do want to do something for them, but I know that I can't do that unless I'm actually fully established myself. You need to build. You do need to build. Quite
1: funny. I'm sure if you ask like, you know, 10 people, Nine of them would want to buy their mama a house. There's a bunch of like irate dads out there. Like, where's my
0: house? <laughs> oh, dude, have you seen that the price of houses out in Lagos these days, mate? Like, No, geez, I haven't. Oh, mate. One of my, so one of my, my neighbor in uh, Lagos, we used to knock around and we used to do some crazy stuff, man. Like when I was okay. like 15, 16, we were writing adverts for UNICEF. His name's Lurie. Uh, he's in London now. Um, and he wants to obviously buy a house back home. And he he, he will ring me sometimes. He'd be like, dude, look at this house. And I'm looking at the house and I'm like, how much is that? And I'm just like, the prices, like, bearing in mind we've got the exchange rate. Mm. But the prices are just crazy. And the houses are awesome. But it's just like, it's a, different, it's a different level. And I think it's because of, you know, there's a lot of music guys making a lot of money out there now. Victoria yeah. Island, Leckie, all of those parts are just, nice like yeah really really nice so yeah um this
1: is a bit of a tangent but um i uh something i'm hopeful for over the course of our lifetimes is um seeing more tourism going towards uh, the african continent and i'll speak for west africa because that's where we're from um because what, what was the name of the um last christmas the festival that everyone was going to like G- Ghana way?
0: I don't remember. Oh, I right. wasn't aware of. A, I wasn't even aware of one, mate. Oh, uh, it's uh, that's gonna annoy me. I'm gonna have to look at like so. Lots of people
1: went to Ghana over Christmas, and not not just Ghanaian people, but you know Caribbean people are going there. Um, and it was the first time I saw there being um, sort of tourism on <clears throat> to 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 sort of West Africa. What's interesting though. Is that people have been going to, in my opinion, the African continent for some time? Mm-hmm. T- Tenerife and Gran Canaria are, are so just close. off the <laughs> yeah. coast of Western Sahara. Yeah. That is like the biggest rebrand of all time. Like that's mm-hmm. not Spain. That's <laughs> that's that's Africa.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Geographically. Yeah.
1: So if not there, then why yeah, why not
0: Lagos? Yeah. Why not? There is a guy actually on YouTube. Um, he's a Nigerian guy, and he um, he covers and travels Africa, and he and he promotes Africa from a tourism point of view. I can't okay. remember his name. I'll have to. I'll give you his name. But he he did a, a tour of certain parts of Nigeria, and I'm just like it, beautiful, really, really beautiful. But it does need a little bit of investment and to really kind of like raise awareness. But really beautiful territories, really really nice. Okay, I think
1: that the festival may have been afro nation ah but i do yeah i do apologize if that's if that's the wrong one but it was just it was just really interesting i went yeah. i went online and loads of people were, were were back home it was really heartwarming
0: yeah perfect well look we've we've spoken for a bit here um i hope everybody has found this uh interesting and i hope that you know this is probably giving you if you're not of the black community, a little bit of an insight to maybe a little bit of culture and some of our background and so on and so forth. I hope you found it interesting at the very, very least, but I want to thank Timmy, Mr. Money Jar, for coming on the show. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and uh, very happy to come back. We're going to be speaking in a few weeks on on, on my show, hopefully. Yes, absolutely. Um, So
0: actually, where do they find you?
1: Sure. So, I am Mr. Money Jar on Instagram, um, Twitter, and Facebook, and I have this month launched a weekly Instagram live series called The Mr. Money Jar Show. It's every Monday at 6.30pm, and i um, very lucky to have Pete um, agreed to come on as a guest in the coming weeks.
0: Perfect. So please do check him out, guys, and show some support. Um, you know there's often this air of well you do exactly what I do therefore your competition I don't really see it that way I think we're all just we're just a bunch of people doing exactly the same thing trying to provide information to empower people's personal finances that's what this is basically all about so definitely definitely. the more information and more um, perspectives that you can take into account when you're looking at your personal finances i believe is a good thing as long as it empowers you so guys thank you so much for dialing into the show there will be some links in the show notes um, to to mr money jar here and some other things we've spoken about in the show today but until next monday have a great week catch you soon Take care.